A few years ago, I witnessed a historical event in person. Obviously, we are witnessing history every single day. Every news event, every daily occurrence is transcribed into the history books. But in January of 2012, I witnessed history in person. You see, on January 2nd, 2012, alongside two of my best friends in high school, I visited Universal Studios in Orlando. It would have been a normal day in a theme park for three teenagers if it wasn't for one specific event that solidified that day in my memory forever. You see, it was the final day of Jaws the Ride. As we stroll through the streets of Amity, this little New England village seems like any seaside resort in summer. Young men thronging around the shooting gallery, people basking in the sun, crowds taking photographs of a great white shark. A great white shark. But this is a movie set, and this is where Jaws turns an elemental fear of the water into screaming terror. But today, the sea is calm. It's a good day for a boat ride. Originally opened in 1990, Jaws the Ride was a unique theme park ride. It was inspired by a different theme park ride, one of Universal's first. Disneyland opened in Anaheim, California in 1955. It had a slow start, but by the mid-60s, it was a juggernaut. Other theme parks across the country were trying to make their own space in the family entertainment industry. Universal, as a movie studio themselves, saw that there was an opportunity to open their own version of Disney, albeit in a scaled-down way. Universal wanted to open something at their actual studio, however, so they settled on a backlot tour, which opened in 1964. Still present at Universal Hollywood to this day, the tram tour takes you through active studio lots, through demonstrations, and around iconic sets. In 1976, after the success of the movie Jaws, the Backlot Tour added a Jaws section, where you could visit sets from the movie and eventually be attacked by the eponymous Jaws himself. When Universal Orlando opened on June 7, 1990, Jaws the Ride opened with it, a much larger scale version of that original version in Hollywood. It was a near disaster from the jump. Even though the original design was made with creative assistance from Steven Spielberg, the director of Jaws, the track of the Jaws ride was a mess. It would stop and start at random intervals and sometimes wouldn't even start up. It was a disaster likely because most of the mechanics in the ride were underwater and not fully proofed to be so. A full refurbishment needed to be done, resulting in a reopening in 1993. Roy Scheider and Lorraine Gary, who played Chief Brody and his wife Ellen, were in attendance with Spielberg at that reopening. It lasted nearly 20 years as the rest of the park grew around it as its neighbors changed or fell away. When I was in high school, Jaws was a must-ride for me. As a lifelong lover of Florida theme parks, I don't think I've been on a ride quite as memorable as Jaws was. It bears some resemblance to Jungle Cruise, which is admittedly a ride I do not like. The jokes there are too corny and the vibe is outdated to put it kindly. But Jaws the Ride took the basic conceit of Jungle Cruise, wherein you board a boat for a quote-unquote normal tour and then things go awry, and completely enhanced it. There's even a skipper on the boat making jokes and acting as the tour guide. Their name is naturally Skipper, but they go by Skip. Their jokes were far superior to Jungle Cruise, and the set was way more expansive. In the case of Jaws, the boat you're riding is being hunted by 
a shark. Other boats disappear beneath the surface as the shark hunts them down. Ominous bubbles and roaring emanate from a dark building as your boat quietly drifts through. The space the ride went through was basically a movie set with fake buildings and props and special effects. It was out in the open air with the Florida blue sky shining above. I loved it every single time I rode it. If I'm being honest with you, I think I rode the actual ride dozens of times before I even saw the original movie once. I mean, I loved that ride. And then it closed. The Wizarding World of Harry Potter had opened in Islands of Adventure in 2010 and was such a success that Universal decided to expand. There needed to be space to open a second phase for Wizarding World and the Jaws ride was on the chopping block. On a chilly January evening, the second night of the year, I was one of the last people to ever ride Jaws the Ride at Universal Orlando. I distinctly remember our skipper breaking character. When the boat was attacked by Jaws, he laughed about the boat sinking and added, oh, who cares, this ride won't even exist tomorrow. It was wonderful and tragic and surreal, and though it's been a decade, I still think fondly of that strange little ride. But Jaws the Ride is not the only connection between our state and this franchise, nor is it the last connection between this franchise and our Orlando theme parks. Jaws made three sequels, in fact, two of which were partially filmed in Florida. One of them was actually filmed in SeaWorld Orlando. That is Jaws 3D. And take it from me, it is one of the most insane movies I have ever seen. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. It's July 5th, and I felt a great way to celebrate this period of summer is to celebrate Jaws, which not only is a blockbuster that came out in the summer, but is also set at Independence Day. So now is the perfect time to talk about one of my favorite weird little movie history facts the Jaws sequels. This is the story of how an independent blockbuster spawned a trilogy of sequels, how two of those sequels came to Florida, and the strange ways that those movies have changed the way we think about sharks. Before we get into the story, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor. This episode of Wait 5 Minutes is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. There are links to both of those in the description of the episode. Thank you to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this season of Wait 5 Minutes. When was the last time you saw Jaws? If you're like me, you probably watched it this past weekend. It's set on the 4th of July, and it is the perfect midsummer movie. I cannot count how many times I've seen Jaws, honestly. I watch it basically twice a year. It's my favorite movie to watch with my dad, and dozens of quotes from that movie are just part of our shared vocabulary. I think it's 
basically a perfect movie. Maybe my favorite American movie. The characters are incredible. The filmmaking is masterful. The script is hilarious. I think that pop culture has turned it into a joke of sorts, a stereotype of a classic Hollywood film. People know the song and the more famous quotes, but somehow ignore the actual quality of the screenplay, the story, and the relationships. Brody and Hooper's friendship is one of my favorite friendships in cinema history. It's just an amazing movie, and I will love it forever and ever. If you've somehow never seen it, you have to. It's a simple story. A local police chief, a scientist, and an old fisherman team up to hunt down a great white shark that is terrorizing a coastal New England community on the week of the 4th of July. It's based on a novel by a man named Peter Benchley. It was bought by the folks at Universal Pictures to be turned into a movie. A few other filmmakers had turned it down, but the young upstart 26-year-old Steven Spielberg wanted a gig. He had already made his first movie with Universal, and they believed in his potential to make it into a successful film. Spielberg had big ideas, but the universe wasn't exactly on his side. He wanted to film on the open ocean, for one thing, which made production difficult. They needed a fake shark for use in the film, but that kept breaking down. Robert Shaw, who plays the ship captain Quint, was a pain on set, frequently arguing with his co-stars Roy Scheider and Richard Dreyfuss. It was a total headache at all times. It is frankly a miracle that the movie turned out the way that it did. It turned out to be a huge winner for Universal. They had spent months marketing the movie constantly and distributed it broadly upon release, which was uncommon at the time. Some screens would get big movies weeks after release as printing the film to a real cost money. With Jaws, however, Universal invested in putting it out as far and as wide as they could. It only cost the company $9 million to make Jaws, but the movie brought in, quote, over $470 million in global returns, including a $260 million domestic take, end quote. Film historians note Jaws as a turning point for cinema. It was the first summer blockbuster, meaning that it was a big, big draw against other movies coming out at the same time. In the nearly 50 years since Jaws came out, movie companies have been chasing that same sort of return. Releasing a movie in the summer, usually a huge one with wide appealing draws, makes up most of the income for major movie studios and has for the last five decades. And what do you do when you have a colossal hit on your hands, a unique and surprising franchise that clearly has cultural weight to it? Well, you do what anyone would do. You make a sequel. So that is exactly what Universal did. Spielberg, however, wanted nothing to do with it. That was the first problem. Universal was ready to make the movie nearly immediately, and in June of 1977, production launched on the second movie in the Jaws franchise. Just as finding the right director for the original Jaws was a dilemma, so too was picking the sequel's director. Universal had somehow lured back several members of the original cast. Both Roy Scheider and Lorraine Gary agreed to return, though Scheider openly complained the whole time and in the decades following. He hated the production and regretted coming back. Murray Hamilton also returned, the actor who so brilliantly portrayed Mayor Vaughn, the greedy politician at the heart of the first film's human conflict. Without Spielberg, things were just off balance. A man named John D. Hancock was hired, but soon quit after just a month of production under his guidance. Mental Floss says that in search of a new director, quote, they approached over 20 different names, end quote. 
The story goes that while Spielberg was in production for his next movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is one of my favorites of his, he was begged by Universal to return. He did pitch a different idea for the movie. A prequel, in fact, set in World War II and recounting the story that Captain Quint tells on the boat in the iconic scene. Universal declined and went on to hire Gino Zwark to finish the movie. When it opened, it was a smash success, making it the highest grossing sequel at that time. The plot is set in the original town, Amity, following a second shark harassing the town and Chief Brody. It is surprisingly good, following Brody as his paranoia and trauma from the first film manifest in interesting ways. This movie was at least partially filmed in Florida. The original movie had loads of New England aesthetic to it, and the sequel used some of those original sets and locations, but when this movie cuts to its scenes filmed in Florida, you can just tell. It just looks different. Our southern coastlines have a different feel to them. It was actually the second director, Zwark, who brought production down to Florida. They filmed in a few prominent areas along the Panhandle's Gulf Coast. The town of Navarre, Florida, current population around 45 5,000 was a prominent location for filming. The nearby Okaloosa Island had a bar that was used for the indoor bar scenes. The Florida coastal sands and high dunes were the spot for many sequences of folks, mostly Chief Brody, running down the shores searching for that pesky shark. Brody stands atop a shark observation tower, which is not a very common structure as far as I can tell, keeping an eye out for the fin of the shark to crest the water. There's even a motel in one of the opening sequences that is so clearly a Florida motel, and indeed it is a location in Navarre, Florida. The movie itself feels more akin to an 80s horror film than a sequel to that original movie. The original movie isn't so much a horror film as much as people like to say it is. It's more of a drama than anything else, and a pretty funny one at that, but Jaws 2 has more in common with my beloved Friday the 13th movies than the original Jaws. The focus on the movie is more on a rambunctious crew of teenagers than Chief Brody himself. The final sequence of the movie sees a flotilla of strung-together boats far out at sea as the teenagers are slowly hunted by the shark. One story goes that during the production, actual sharks appeared in the water, terrifying the teenage actors, though that may be a more fun story than the truth. Another odd anecdote. That final sequence of the movie includes Brody reaching a far-out island to help save the kids. Well, that rocky island was not real. It was created artificially, totally built by the crew and anchored out in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of the Panhandle. The story goes that one day the director got an emergency call. His false island had come unmoored from its holding and was now drifting south. Apparently he was told his island was headed to Cuba. It was rescued and production completed. What came out of that is a much maligned movie, unfairly in my opinion. Yes, it is nowhere near as good as Jaws, but there is something to be loved in this movie. Getting to see Chief Brody again and exploring how the original events affected him, it's compelling and fun, and the final 20 minutes or so out on that fake island are absolutely wild. You should give it a watch, it's not as bad as you have heard it is, it's actually a pretty good summer movie.
We've gotten pretty far into this episode, so it is time for me to tell you some obligatory facts, things that we have to clarify before we go forward. Sharks do not behave the way that they do in the Jaws franchise. It has been written about for the last several decades how sharks are completely misrepresented, but it is important to note here as well. The sharks in the Jaws movies are usually great white sharks, which are, quote, the largest predatory fish on Earth, end quote. They are powerful hunters with 300 teeth and the ability to literally sense the presence of other animals. This is from National Geographic, quote, they even have organs that can sense the tiny electromagnetic fields generated by animals, end quote. That is amazing. I, I mean, they are otherworldly in a sense, but that's not accurate. They are our fish, our sharks. And the shark in Jaws is a genuinely dangerous creature. It kills and eats people several times in the movie and in the sequels as well. Nat Geo says about one third of shark attacks in the world are from great white sharks, but most are not fatal. The real great white shark is a much more interesting creature than being minimized to just a vengeful killing machine as it is portrayed in the movies. Sharks are not as determined as the Jaws movies make them out to be. They have no penchant for revenge or targeting the family members of someone who has killed another great white shark in the past. Maybe that doesn't make for good narrative fiction, but it's important to note that one detail. It is fiction. The reality is different. Scientists have noted that in the years following the release of the first Jaws, trophy hunting of sharks, including in Florida, surged. Thousands of sharks were hunted and killed, proudly displayed by over-eager hunters who maybe just wanted to prove how tough and skilled they were. Peter Benchley, who wrote the original Jaws novel, expressed regret years later, saying he feels personally responsible for the death of innocent sharks. Sharks do not target. Sharks do not remember. Sharks are not our enemies. They are just another animal in the wild that deserve the same respect as we give to friendly dolphins and harmless little fish beneath our feet. With that being said, no Jaws movie has more fun toying with reality than Jaws 3D. A creature alive today has survived millions of years of evolution. It lives to kill a mindless eating machine that will attack and devour anything. One terrified you like nothing you have ever experienced when it captured your imagination and tapped your fear like no movie before it. Then, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, two continued the legend and spread the fear. Next summer, nature's most terrifying creature takes on an all-new dimension in an all-new adventure. And for the first time, the terror of Jaws will not stop at the edge of the screen. Jaws 3D. The third dimension is terror. In case you haven't noticed, I am saying Jaws 3D and not just Jaws 3. That is because it was indeed created and screened in 3D. 
This was a huge trend in the early 80s. When I'm talking about 3D in this specific time period, I'm not talking about those boring, vaguely gray glasses that we wear to see IMAX 3D movies nowadays. No, I'm talking about the original red and blue 3D glasses that hurt your eyes a little bit but make images on screen look as if they are coming right at you. In case you're as interested in this as I am, this red-blue 3D technique is called Anaglyph 3D. Anaglyph 3D dates back to the mid-1800s, and it was used to create fascinating printed eye tricks for decades. It wasn't until the 1950s that they started to be used in cinema, when they became a huge trend in adventure or monster pictures. They went out of fashion for a long time, but saw a strange return in the early 80s. It's been noted how much of 1950s culture made its way back in the 1980s, and 3D was a major example of this. Amityville Horror made a 3D movie. One of my favorite franchises, Friday the 13th, made their third movie 3D. And Jaws 3D, though made during this time of 3D resurgence, was not actually an anaglyph 3D movie. It was made using something called a polarized 3D system, so it wasn't red and blue. It had these lenses that basically made it so that only certain light comes in at certain points, creating a three-dimensional picture. It was still colorful, but it wasn't as classically red and blue as I'd like to hope it was. The most exciting thing about Jaws 3D, besides that strange 3D function that it has, is that it was filmed in SeaWorld Orlando. Disney opened their successful park in California, then Universal followed, and so did SeaWorld. SeaWorld opened their first park in San Diego in 1964. They attempted to expand east the same way the others did, though much less successfully. They opened their second park in Ohio in 1970. The northern weather made it a bit of a catastrophe that they somehow kept open until 2001. But in 1973, they followed Disney south and opened SeaWorld Orlando just two short years after the Magic Kingdom opened. Disney World was obviously a big deal for Central Florida, but Theme Park Insider points out, quote, SeaWorld helped establish Orlando not just as yet another town with a theme park, but as a multi-park vacation destination nearly 10 years before Disney would open its second park, end quote. SeaWorld is often left out in that narrative, but it really changed the conversation about what Orlando could be. There wasn't just one park here now, there was multiple. You could come here and go to several different theme parks in one trip. Now, I would love to tell you that Jaws 3D is set in Orlando, but I'm not entirely sure that I can. One of the key plot points of this movie is that the park borders the ocean. In case you weren't sure, SeaWorld Orlando is quite far from the ocean. But that is not the only problem with Jaws 3D. Jaws 3D follows the son of Chief Brody, Mike Brody, played by Dennis Quaid. Roy Scheider absolutely refused to come back to the franchise after having such a horrible time making the second movie. So the narrative shifts to his character's son. Mike is not in Amity anymore, the same town where the other movies were set. Mike is now an employee of SeaWorld in Florida. The park is planning on opening a brand new exhibit, a series of underwater tunnels in the center of the lagoon in their park. As the park is preparing to make a whole celebration out of it, what else but a great white shark slips through the gates from the ocean and enters the central lagoon. It begins to prey on employees of the park and eventually going on a rampage attacking the underwater tunnels as they are filling with tourists on opening day. Louis Gossett Jr. plays the park manager, Calvin, who is refusing to believe that the shark is a threat for most of the movie, only for the shark to come hurtling at full speed at the underwater control center he is working at near the end of the movie. It's 
It's amazing. In another scene, Mike Brody boards a boat and goes roaring around the central lagoon, warning fans of the oncoming shark as water skiers flee their doom. At another point, some bottlenose dolphins protect our heroes from the shark as it hunts them down. Spoiler, but when the shark dies from an explosion at the end of the movie, some terribly rendered 3D chunks of shark come flying at the viewer. It is now that I must make an admission to you. I love Jaws 3D. I totally love it. I don't want to be unfair to Jaws 3D. I'm a huge fan of movies that most people would describe as bad. You've heard my friend Bailey DeVoe on this show before, we've discussed ghosts with her in the past, but what you don't know is we have spent the last year since the pandemic began watching bad movies nearly every single week over FaceTime. We've watched Plan 9 from Outer Space. We've watched Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. We've watched Nothing But Trouble twice. We have watched some really, really bad movies, and recently we watched Jaws 3D. It was directed by Joe Alves, who was the production designer and mechanic behind the original shark robot from Spielberg's Jaws. Alves would go on to work with my favorite director, John Carpenter, on Escape from New York and Starman. He brings that sense of adventure, that weird charisma to this movie. It is colorful and frenetic, and as a person who fantasized about working at SeaWorld or Animal Kingdom as a child, it really attracts my nostalgia. Not to mention that, but it also has some insane dialogue, which I always love. In one scene, one of the scientists tells the park manager that the shark they had trapped earlier wasn't the culprits of the deaths, it was actually the shark's mother, and the manager responds, you're talking about some damn shark's mother? You're talking about some damn shark's mother? It genuinely made me laugh out loud. It is a totally insane, straining credulity movie that, if it wasn't branded as a Jaws movie, it might actually have a cult reputation as a wonderful monster adventure movie. It knows that it's silly. It's not trying to not be. It is having fun with the weirdness of this movie, and I don't think it gets enough credit for that. The franchise title, which should be the thing that lifts it up, actually weighs as an anchor around its throat, dragging it down. I am not exaggerating. I love it. You should watch it. It's great. When it opened, it had the biggest opening weekend of any movie in all of 1983. It made $13.5 million in the first weekend and grossed $45.5 million in the United States. Despite the reputation the movie now carries, it was a success upon arrival. It was not quite the joke everyone wants you to think it was, and in my opinion, it deserves a better reputation than it carries currently. Having spent the last 16 or so months watching movies that people would call bad has really taught me something that I want to share with you. There are plenty of movies that are made in bad taste, and plenty of movies that were made to capitalize on a brand name or a trend in cinema. Those aren't my favorite. But there are plenty of movies that were made with exceeding amounts of creativity and passion and excitement that somehow missed the mark. Maybe the acting is less than perfect, or the script is silly, or the effects are outdated, but someone, somewhere, loved that movie. You can be watching some of the most bananas, unusual films, and genuinely have an incredible time watching it, as long as you're open to that. I think that people get hung up when someone tells them that something is bad, instead of considering that there is something valuable within that product, that, that piece of art. We turn up our noses and think ourselves better as if we have never made something goofy, something we wish we had done better, something we are a little embarrassed about, but 
that is something that undoubtedly helps us learn. I think that is the true joy of loving bad movies as I do. It reminds me that anybody can make anything less than perfect. I certainly have. Those Jaws sequels are a perfect reminder of that, that it doesn't need to be a masterpiece. It doesn't even need to be good to make something worthwhile. It's a waste of time to be afraid of making something because you're not going to do it great on the first try. Those movies exist. Make it anyway. If you are a creator and you are nervous about the possibility of making something quote-unquote bad, I recommend watching the Jaws sequels. Not only will you get to see Florida beautifully shown on screen in fun and quirky and strange ways, but there is also a lot to be learned. Most importantly, that sometimes you have to just sit back, laugh, and enjoy the chaos as it unfolds around you. Frankly, there is nothing quite as Florida as that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. If you are brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. This is certainly not the show's first foray into cinema history. In fact, we talked a lot about cinema history in our two episodes about Hamasasa State Park. There are some fascinating old Hollywood stories connected to that park you have have to go give those episodes a listen and now is a great time to go say hello and pay them a visit. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com and thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. Looking for more Wait 5 Minutes? Well, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, and photos from my trips around the state. For this episode, I've included some clips from Jaws and its sequels that you need to go watch and check out for some context. I'll be updating past transcripts from previous episodes as well, so you can go back and revisit your favorite episodes in new ways. Head to WFMPod.com for more. You can also now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparizio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using a photograph by our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle About Florida by a Floridian in a classic citrus style. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. All of the music used in this episode was originally composed. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. Next week, I went to the Motorsports Hall of Fame in Daytona and learned all about the original years of racing on Daytona's beaches. It is such an exciting episode. I've been waiting for this one for a very long time. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. If you have not gotten your vaccine yet, please look into it and get it as soon as you can to make sure that you and those around you are safe. And of course, please drink more 
water. Have a good week. Happy July. See you next week.